So after my second album, I'd finally worked so hard to achieve what I'd achieved against so many odds. And I realized I was unhappy. I didn't like it. And so giving myself the permission to quit until I learned what else made me happy was a very radical thing. Mental health breaks were not a word. It was not a term. It was considered very shameful. It was so hard to give myself the permission to just take that space and let it all go because I wanted my happiness so badly. Welcome to Imposters, the show where I talk to world-class execs, athletes, and entertainers about their personal challenges and how overcoming those challenges has shaped their careers and lives for the better. I'm your host, Alex Lieberman, co-founder and executive chairman of Morning Brew. My guest today is Jewel. If you're a millennial, you probably remember Jewel bursting onto the music scene in 1995 with that hypnotic hit, Who Will Save Your Soul. Her debut album, Pieces of You, went 12 times platinum and marked the start of a decades-long career with 13 studio albums, including her latest, Free Will and Woman, which came out this year after a seven-year break from music. But music isn't Jewel's only passion. Jewel is also a passionate advocate for mental health. For nearly 20 years, Jewel has worked alongside the Inspiring Children Foundation to help at-risk youth gain access to mental health tools, and she also runs JewelNeverBroken.com, a nonprofit website that bills itself as an emotional fitness destination for those seeking more balance and happiness in their lives. Jewel has also recently announced her Not Alone Challenge campaign, the mission of which is to raise funds to give free mental health resources available to those in need. As you'll hear in this interview, Jewel is no stranger to emotional pain. When she was just eight years old, her mother left her family, and Jewel was left with an abusive and alcoholic father as her sole parent. After leaving her home at just 15, Jewel spent the next several years in and out of poverty, at times living out of her car and suffering from panic attacks and agoraphobia. But the tools Jewel has developed out of this pain is inspiring. My full conversation with Jewel right after this quick break. Jewel, thank you so much for joining Imposters. Thanks. Glad to be here. You have a truly remarkable story that you've been open about throughout your career. You had a difficult home life growing up in a very rural town of Homer, Alaska. Your mom left when you were eight years old and you were left with your father who struggled with substance abuse. And you famously left home and went out on your own at just 15. That is a crazy experience for any person. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that experience was like and how you even found the courage to go out on your own at such a young age? Yeah, I think a lot of things led up, obviously, to that moment. Um, I did know at 15 that the odds were really against me and that statistically it wouldn't work out. And so if I was going to move out at 15, I had to have some logical hope that I would do better. Um, and so I really thought a lot about it. One of the things I really realized was that as much as I had a genetic inheritance, you know, that might give me a predisposition to diabetes, I also had an emotional inheritance. And that would give me a predisposition toward abuse or these um, cycles, um, addiction, being with an abusive partner. And I didn't want to be a statistic. 
I'm fairly visual, you know, so the way I saw it was like this river that I was in, and it was this emotional, yeah, emotional inheritance. And I'd already learned to speak it. You know, by 15, I could tell that that was the language I knew how to speak and that it was probably a, a billion words, a billion parts of a vocabulary. Words like data weren't around, you know, yet because computers were barely starting. But now I would say it was like that language is a million points of data that my my mind learned to associate to a million emotional concepts, you know, like love. Uh, my mom left or my dad wasn't that nice to me, but he said he loved me which I'm sure he did. So what is a brain supposed to do with a billion data points that are conflicting like that? So I know I needed to learn a new emotional language, but I didn't, there was no school. You know, you could go somewhere to learn Spanish, but you couldn't go somewhere to learn new emotional language. And so I sort of set off on this mission that I was excited about, which was how do I learn a new emotional way of relating to the world? And this concept too of nature versus nurture, I was reading a lot of philosophy at the time and this idea of, you know, what if my nurture was so bad I would never get to know my nature? What made me think about it was we had a bunny that um, was raised with chickens and it pecked at its food and it waddled, didn't hop like normal, and it would sit on the nests, uh, the chickens' nests, and it would hatch eggs for the, the hens. And that really scared me when I moved out because I was like, what if I'm a bunny that thinks it's a chicken? And will I ever get to know my little bunny nature? And so... I was peeling an orange one day, and for some reason, that image really struck me of peeling this orange and realizing or supposing what if that peel was like my nurture and that I was relating so much to my nurture that I was forgetting what I was inside was my nature. And sort of this idea that my nurture caused my personality to form this like crust around me and it might be suspicious or mistrusting or codependent or who knows what, but that was all just an external uh, reaction to my environment. Who I was was inside. And so I had to develop ways of going down and in, and that would be my nature. And so as I moved out the whole rest of my life, and to this day, honestly, those are concepts that I'm exploring and then creating exercises around, um, not only to help myself, but, but other people. You talk about your journey with understanding yourself and kind of separating how you think about whether it's your nurture or your nature. You talk about it in such an elevated way. And what I'm curious about is like when you were 15, did you think about it in such a sophisticated way? And I don't make any assumptions because for some people, it takes a lifetime to have these tools and use this vocabulary for other people you know, part nature, part nurture, they're able to navigate things at a really young age. When you were 15 or kind of between 15 and 18, how much access did you have to these tools to process all of the shit that you dealt with earlier in life? My tools in the beginning were real simple. Um, you know, I grew up in bars, so I saw people in pain. I was in pain. My, you know, mom left, my dad became abusive. And so I could see that people were in pain. I saw that people were dealing with pain in a variety of manners, whether it was drug abuse or sex addictions or relationships or just volatility and rage. I saw that nobody outran pain. So I wrote that down in my book. I was probably, I don't know how old, 10 or 11. You can't outrun pain. And then I had heard about that the buffalo is the only animal that moves into the heart of the storm because the quickest way is through. And so I remember writing down, just be the buffalo. Um, I remember watching trees. There were soft trees that grew quickly and they fell over quickly. And there was hardwood trees that 
took a long time to grow, were very thoughtful about their growth, but they lasted a long time. And this idea of hardwood grows slowly, you know, I remember writing that down and that was one of the tools that I used. And then I would try and figure out how to make these tools practicable. So what does it mean to move toward pain? Like, how do you take that from a concept into something that's an actual practice? Because I definitely did realize we live in a world of action and you can't abstain from action. And so if you can't replace old action with a new action, you're not going to have change. You're just going to have ideas about changing. And for some reason, I did have a talent for that. I didn't realize it at the time. I didn't realize that was a talent. But looking back, I can see that that was an anomaly um, that my whole life, for some reason, I've been very process obsessed and very practice obsessed. You got your very first record deal at 18. And you've been very open about the fact that, you know, fame isn't something that you sought out. And I even saw you say somewhere that like, music was second to kind of you understanding yourself, what brought you happiness, joy, kind of just understanding yourself at the deepest level. What was it like to be thrown into the spotlight at 18, where on one side, it seemed like it was at a time that you needed that in terms of the ability to live and survive. But on the other side, since fame wasn't necessarily what you were seeking, what were the um, the trade-offs of being in that position? Yeah, I ended up in my car, which I feel like the whole world knows about. Um, I think at the time it was portrayed that I was living in my car for my dreams, to pursue my dreams. That was not why I was living in my car. I was living in my car because I wouldn't have sex with a boss. And when I wouldn't have sex with him, he wouldn't give me my paycheck. And so we couldn't make our rent. And my mom and I both lived in our cars. Um, my mom ended up going back to Alaska and I thought I'd get back on my feet, but I ended up in a, just a really vicious poverty cycle. I was having bad panic attacks, I was agoraphobic and I had bad kidneys. And so I, it was very hard for me to hold the job down. And so I started singing in a coffee shop uh, just to try and get off the street. It was during this time that I hit kind of this whole new gear of practices and exercises that were helping me with really difficult pain points shoplifting. I was shoplifting a lot and I realized I would end up in jail or dead and that I was a statistic. You know, I moved out at 15 being like, I won't be a statistic. I was homeless stealing. So, you know, I avoided the stripper pole, but you know, that's still pretty big statistic here. And so I had to get really serious about how am I going to get out of this really dangerous situation? And one of the first things I tackled, I think, was the shoplifting. I saw it as a a triangle. There was a before, a during, and an after. And I couldn't do much about the before, whatever it was stimulating me to steal. And I was often waking up after I stole. And so first I had to cultivate awareness, which was something I'd been working on. Mindfulness wasn't even a term then, but I couldn't see my thoughts in real time. And so I had to develop this practice of like, how do you start to show up in real time? I didn't know the word disassociative, but basically I was so disassociative that I couldn't be present. And so developing exercises for that and then tackling shoplifting and learning to replace shoplifting with writing. And I was a very prolific thief, so I became a very prolific writer. There's a lot more to it, like when you break down what these practices were. But at the end of the day, I ended up getting a gig in a coffee shop that was going out of business. And I had begged her just to stay open for one more month and let me see if I could bring in people. And slowly people started to come in and we were able to keep her coffee shop open. I was able to keep the door money, which was actually quite difficult at the time in San Diego. Nobody was paying musicians, but 
what I realized is that I could be happy. I got my panic attacks. I was found out a way to intervene before I had one, which was- How do you do that? Um, well, one was cultivating awareness. So I guess we could just go over some terms. Mindfulness is a word we hear all the time now. So I'll give it a definition. This is my definition. Mindfulness is being consciously present. Like that's all it is. It's this huge catch-all word, but it just means conscious presence. And so there's exercises you can do to cultivate the ability to be consciously present. And that's what meditation does. It's what mindful walking does. Um, it's what exercise does for some people. It's what curiosity does or observation. So that's the bicep curl of mindfulness. It helps get you present. It doesn't mean that when you're present, you're going to like what's happening presently. It just might mean that you're present with a lot of anxiety or you're present with a really bad shoplifting addiction or <laughs> whatever it is. So meditation alone won't change your life. Mindfulness won't change your life. It'll just sort of help you get your brain off of autopilot and into neutral. Now you're present. But now what? You live in a world of action and you have to start to move in a direction. That's what I call putting mindfulness into motion. And so with panic attacks, for instance, you have to start to be able to be present enough to understand what your triggers are. Um, this takes time to really investigate and get curious about what things trigger you. You're looking for patterns that your brain might be subconsciously picking up on that make your brain have a pattern of fight or flight uh, that consciously you might not be necessarily recognizing. Um, for me, I call them pillars. And so when I'm working with people that have panic attacks, I I always say, be really not notice when major pillars are shifting in your life, a relationship breaking up, moving homes, switching jobs, major life events, right? Like maybe COVID or, or huge, huge pillars are shifting. If you have one pillar shifting, you can have a, a self-care plan, being aware that just one pillar shifting in your life, one major attachment is shifting and that's enough to stimulate you. If you have two shifting you better be alerting your friends and saying, hey, I'm on high alert. I have a self-care plan in place. But if I call you, it's probably because I'm starting to have a panic attack. And would you pick up the phone? And so kind of knowing what those triggers are, for me, it was strangers. Like, I, I don't like being around strangers. It's very hard for me. And then being homeless, of course, was very scary. Being famous was the worst. Like, I'm only around strangers and people act very familiar with me. Um, so having really serious kind of plans in place helps kind of knowing what those triggers are. I'm like, okay, I know I'm facing something new and scary and I know this can be stimulating. It is amazing to hear how Jewel at such a young age was able to instinctively find her way to some of these amazing tools for handling her panic attacks and anxiety. As someone who has suffered from them myself, I can attest to the fact that these are incredibly effective. Another tool that Jewel uses is something that she calls dilation and contraction. And she describes it as a practice in which she maps out what she's feeling, thinking, or doing whenever she's feeling relaxed, which is the dilated state, or whenever she's feeling anxious, which is the contracted state. She says that by writing down these observations, over time, you will get familiar with the things that trigger either an anxious state or a relaxed, dilated state, which you can then use to your advantage. I don't say the word hack very often because I don't believe in hacks. This is the one where you can actually hack your nervous system out of a contracted state into a dilated state by forcing yourself to participate on something on your list of dilation. So 
a thought that used to undo me was I have no idea what I'm doing. I would say that over and over and over, and I would work myself into such a fit. And it was true, mind you. I had no clue what I was doing, and I was scared to death. (laughs) So the truth wasn't, I know what I'm doing. To me, affirmations that way are incredibly pointless and and feeble. I don't enjoy it. I don't think that's a great psychological tool. Telling yourself the truth, like an antidote thought, that helps. So the truth was that I don't quit until I learn. And it makes me relax right now saying it to you. My whole system responds to that. I don't quit. I'm going to figure this out. I will not give up. And so when a thought would trigger me, trigger me, I'd be obsessive, right? OCD, playing it, playing it, playing it. I would be aware enough to notice it and then force myself to say, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to keep looking at it until I could get my system to relax. So the first time I was able to ward off a panic attack, again, this is after cultivating a lot of awareness, being able to notice my body in real time ramping up, being able to be present enough to look at my list of dilation And then I chose uh, gratitude. Whenever I was really deeply grateful, it just seemed like all the floodgates were open. And I mean, I don't mean like hashtag grateful, you know, I mean like that deep bone crushing sense being moved to tears. These things have to move your whole body. It has to be something where you get a, a visceral reaction to it for it to really work. I was feeling very sorry for myself this day. I couldn't think of a single thing to be grateful for. So I did the next best thing, which was getting curious and observant in real time. And so I noticed the sunlight filtering through a palm tree. And it suddenly just transported me to being a kid in Alaska and laying on the meadows, looking at the the trees and the sunlight. And suddenly I was struck by this thought of like, how shocking is it that I haven't killed myself? I don't really know what made me think it. I suddenly was so moved with gratitude for myself that I just kept going despite so many odds. And I was moved to tears by sometimes the most radical form of activism is just to take one more breath. And what a beautiful thing that is. What a courageous, beautiful thing that was. And I was so moved by it. The next thing I knew, I think at least a half hour had passed. I would become so wrapped up in this thought process that caused my whole system to dilate that It helped my brain not go offline. It helped keep the blood flow in these other processing centers in my brain. We're going to take a quick break here, but when we come back, we'll hear how Jewel has navigated her career and fame in a way that works for her mental health and how she worked through a bitter personal betrayal at the height of her career. Stay with us. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. And we're back. Before the break, Jewel talked about her tumultuous childhood and how some early traumatic experiences caused her to cultivate some mindfulness practices that helped her survive. She also talked about how being famous brought on some triggering experiences for her. So I wanted to know how she learned to cope with this as her fame and success grew. I want you to provide me some context on what fame 
has been like for you, given kind of all of this self-discovery you've done and this prioritization of happiness, what's the impact that fame has had on you from when you started in your career at 18 years old and you're thrust into it with your record deal to even to today where you know you spend a fair bit of time with people that would be considered famous and you end up playing in front of people that idolize you. I guess, how do you leverage kind of the best of what fame offers you without having to necessarily be brought down by kind of the trade-offs and the risks that are also associated with it? When I did finally get discovered, I almost didn't sign that deal because I knew that you take somebody with my background and God forbid somebody like me gets famous. It's every movie you've seen about every celebrity, you know, that goes down in flames. So I knew I was, again, a high candidate to be a statistic. I did not think that a music career would necessarily make me happy. My goal in life hadn't changed since I was 15. I wanted to learn how to be happy. Was happiness a learnable skill? I really learned a lot about how to be happy while I was homeless. And when you can learn how to be happy in a really difficult situation like that, you can't be leveraged because you can't negotiate with someone like that. I can walk away from any deal. It makes me incredibly difficult to negotiate with because I value my happiness above anything. And I'm not going to let an insecurity leverage me into a bad deal because I learned I can actually be happy living in a car. So how are you going to fuck with that? That's a hard thing to fuck with as long as you don't leverage yourself, you know? So for me, it was really what I call my North Star decisions. Um, how do we navigate a million decisions we have to make every day over a long period of time without drifting? So that North Star decision to me was very important. And for me, it was that my number one job was to learn how to be a happy person. My number two job was to learn how to be a musician. And that meant as much as I had a plan for my career, I had to have a plan for my happiness that was actionable, accountable, that had metrics, and that I took that very seriously. The number two thing was that I wanted to be an artist more than I wanted to be famous. And so with those two things, you can see how quickly that's a sorting system. Every decision was just very simple. Is it going to make me happier or will it make me unhappier? Will it cause me to grow too quickly and become famous but hurt my artistry? And then just staying loyal to those, you trust that over the long run, you'll have a direction that was fulfilling. But it meant making a lot of really radical decisions. I turned down a massive TV show at the beginning of my career, which, you know, seemed crazy. I turned down a million dollar signing bonus at the beginning of my career. What was the rationale I, for that? I had read a book on the business. Um, when I was homeless, I rented a library book about how contracts were structured and I realized that the million dollars was a, a loan and that you would owe it back through record sales and that you only made money on these mechanicals and royalties, pennies, fractions of pennies. So for me to make back a million dollars, the amount of albums I would have had to sold were astronomical. And therefore the amount of pressure. And therefore the amount of pressure. And pressure is bad for me. It's not like doesn't work for my, that type of pressure didn't work for my mental health. And for the fact that I was here to support art. And why would you leverage a piece of art that hadn't even been built yet? I mean, it just seemed like a terrible idea. So I turned that down, but I took the biggest back end anybody had ever received, which was a huge risk, but it depressured the front end for me, which is what I really needed to figure out. Okay, I'm 18. 
I don't even know how to make a record. I didn't even think I'd be a professional musician. I had a lot to figure out, and that gave me the freedom to really figure it out without pressure. Um, and then it looked like that was a failure. I turned down the TV show. My label thought I was nuts. And I went on to sell like 12 albums in two years. And it looked like it was going to be an absolute failure, um, but just kept going and an amazing couple events happened. And then it started to turn around. And then I started to sell a million albums every month for over a year. And I became wildly famous, so much more famous than I thought a folk singer could be. And famous for me, that was really nice. Like the record was so honest, it really was me. I was wildly criticized in the press, you know, called everything from a chubby Renee Zellweger to going on radio stations with DJs saying, hey, how do you give a blowjob with those effed up teeth? You know, just the crap of the 90s. But I grew up in bars, so it was just like, you know, I would just give it back to these guys. I'd get kicked out of radio stations. But um, I think that by the time I hit, let's see, uh, Spirit, my second album, Hands became a, a big single, luckily. But I I quit. I was done. Like, I couldn't take it. So after my second album, I'd finally worked so hard to achieve what I'd achieved against so many odds. And I realized I was unhappy. I didn't like it. And so giving myself the permission to quit until I learned what else made me happy was a very radical thing. Mental health breaks were not a word. It was not a term. It was considered very shameful. It was so hard to give myself the permission to just take that space and let it all go because I wanted my happiness so badly. And so it was two years of introspection of what works for me about this, what doesn't. What is it that sets me off so bad about being famous? Are there other ways of doing it? Do I want to be another, do I want to be a photographer? Would I like to be a visual artist? Like I really had to explore. What I learned at the end of the two years was I just didn't like that level of fame. It, it, it was too triggering for me. And it didn't let me write. Now everybody was watching me and it was hard to watch people and be a voyeur as a writer. And so I was like, well, then I don't have to do that. I realized in that two years, my, my fame really lowered to the point where now I could walk into a restaurant without a mob or I didn't have to have security guards going across the street with me or have people follow me into the bathroom. That level of fame is zero fun, in my opinion. I don't know how anybody does it. Um, and so I just was like, all right. It's like problem solving. I know I love music. I love inventing. I love taking risks artistically. I'm super curious. I hate fame. And so just creating a career path that solved for that. I took years between albums, always killed my momentum, which was very hard on my business, but very good for me. It meant I had to pay a price. It meant I had to work very hard on every album. Just having that courage to say, these are the things that make me happy. And I'm still making these decisions by these North Star goals. And I have to trust that over the course of 50 years, that that means it'll be some kind of, I don't know, better, better success than what I would be doing. You know, something that stands out to me in what you've said is to kind of make this choice to be happy based on the things that you know lead you to happiness requires you to choose to not hold on to stories that we've been given or that you've been given about what happiness means. And I think, you know, what's amazing about your trajectory is like 
you really didn't grab onto anyone else's story. You didn't grab onto any story of what it meant to be a successful musician or artist, what it meant to, oh, you had to be famous to be successful. You literally just reverse engineered what are the components of happiness for me? What are the ingredients in this recipe? And my story is going to just closely mirror those ingredients. Yeah, I think that our ideas of what make us happy can't be the master over our experience of what makes us happy. If our experience is misery, but our idea is that it's happy, we're in conflict with ourselves and it's very painful and it causes depression and deep conflicts that can lead to all kinds of things. We don't all conflict waste energy. We don't, we don't want to be in conflict, right? Within our own body, within our own skin, within our own psyche. Um, I call it blowing by happiness. Often the things that make us happy are quite simple. We go right by them with a much more complex idea of what we think will give us worth and value. It's nothing to do with happiness. It has to do with an unmet psychological need to like, I'm now worthy. And then you're just a slave to it. Um, but the things that make us happy are often quite simple. That's not to say every moment's great, you know, or, you know, we all work for things. There's always uncomfortable parts. But for the most part, you know, you shouldn't be miserable doing what you think is going to make you happy. Um, and I think like a huge lesson for me was when I learned, I call it making an ally out of your anxiety. When I realized that my my anxiety was actually a didn't mean something was wrong with me. It meant something was right with me. It meant just like with a car alarm, somebody was trying to break into a car, the alarm goes off. You don't get mad at the alarm, you you take care of the burglar. Well, my anxiety, going back to that nature versus nurture, what if my anxiety was actually the very best clue I had that a thought, feeling, or action didn't align to my nature? So what is that, you know, going back to this idea of the idea of what made me happy, it's your nurture, right? You were told these things would make you happy. But if they're giving you anxiety, it must, it's a clue that it doesn't agree with your fundamental being. And so that's an incredibly helpful way to navigate is every time you're anxious, sit down and go, all right, what was I thinking, feeling, or doing? Is it a consistent pattern? And then am I willing to abstain from it? Even with Jewel's progress towards figuring out a career path that protected her mental health, she was still bound for yet another major setback for her career and her happiness. In 2003, after releasing multiple multi-platinum albums and touring for almost 10 years straight, she found out that her own mother, who was her manager at the time, had systematically undermined the management of her money and her business, and Jewel found herself in debt. I mean, talk about a stereotypical thing to have happen to someone, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, I didn't see that coming. You know, when you talk about leverage, like that, I, I couldn't be leveraged in a negotiation. I could be leveraged in a relationship. It turns out I wanted love more than I wanted to understand the truth. This very wounded little part of me, this little girl that just wanted her mom's love was very leverageable. And I didn't see what was happening. And it was a crazy master class. And I mean, you, there's, I have a book called Never Broken. If, it took 300 pages to explain my mom's relationship and her, what I think is her psyche. Wild thing to wake up within. Um, incredibly betraying, I guess, just to say the least. But also very, it was very brainwashing. A lot of the stuff I had thought about my life was true, wasn't actually true. And so having to go back through your entire life and, and filter through 
false aspects and real aspects was a, a very painful thing. I hope nobody has to go through it. And I didn't want to work with a therapist because my mom had messed with my mind so much that I really was like scared of it, I think. And so again, developing systems for myself that I called it self and other. And I think that's an exercise I teach on Never Broken as well of just saying, all right. And that's where I learned my anxiety is my ally. How do I know what's really my thought or what's my conditioned thought? Those are very scary things to think about. Not every thought and feeling is a fact. Is what I'm thinking real information that I should act on or was it put there and it's just scaring me? Those are very hard things to sort through. But if you get very, very simple, and for me, I was just willing to presuppose if it's making me anxious, it is not my nature. It's nurture. And I'm going to drop it like a hot flipping potato. And I'm going to figure out another thought to have. And I'm going to write them down and I'm going to keep track. And so it was, I didn't tour. I had to quit touring for that two years, which was very difficult financially, but definitely what I needed psychologically and was able to get you know, a whole new level of tools out of it, I guess is the good news. <laughs> um, and you do heal and you can heal from incredibly difficult, incredibly painful things. When, say there's someone listening to this who is very unhappy, maybe they're depressed or maybe they're working a job they don't love, but they have to work that job because they feel like they have to make their money in order to survive. And they, you know, hear you say something like happiness is a choice, it's a trainable skill. And they're thinking to themselves, that's bullshit. <laughs> uh, there's no way I could be happy right now given my circumstance because I don't really have this arsenal of choices to make because I have to survive. I'm sure you have a thought in response to this given you've been largely in that position. But what would you say to someone who doubts that, that you can actually choose happiness? Happiness is a side effect it's a side effect of choices, and it's not instant. It's an analog situation. You know, you have to first understand why am I making the choices that lead to unhappiness? That's a real process. You have to start digging into yourself and going, why do I tolerate the intolerable? And so I would tell people to start there with that one question. What in my life is intolerable that I tolerate? Because that's when we become ill. That's when we become leveraged, compromised. And it's us doing it. You know, I, I, I could have slept with that boss with a very good reason. You know, I was being leveraged and I would get kicked out of where I was living and end up homeless. You don't have to. And so what is driving those decisions was the much more interesting thing. And if the decisions you've made have led you to an experience of unhappiness, what could lead you to making different decisions? And so instead of it being a huge, broad thing, just start with very simple questions. What do I tolerate that's intolerable? Am I willing to stop tolerating one of them? And then getting really practical. You know, I don't think everybody has to, I'd say definitely start working with a therapist or a coach or somebody that can help start asking some questions. Like, that's interesting. You make this bad choice over and over. You know, you keep going to this toxic friendship or this toxic relationship or these self-doubting thoughts. Like, that's the level you have to start working on. I've been willing to be pretty radical in my life. I've kind of also gotten myself in really bad situations where I had to be. I don't recommend it. You know, I just didn't know how to see the signs sooner. It usually took my whole life burning down to, for me to figure it out. So I can look like I made really radical, and I have made really radical choices. But you don't have to. 
you know, so I'm not saying that if, if you're uh, in a bad situation, you can be radical if you want. There's a skill I called stalking and dreaming, stalk it and dream it. The idea of stalking is this idea of very practical, it's pragmatic, it's a very pragmatic, logical act. So I want you to imagine the very worst case scenario and then make a plan for it, you know, uh, I don't know. What if investigating means you realize you do have to leave your job? All right. Let's let's say that's the worst case scenario is like, holy smokes, I realized my job makes me miserable, but I need the money. Well, make a plan for it. Don't just quit your job the next day. Be smart. Be really practical. And so make a plan of how much money do I need to quit? How much of a cushion financially do I need so that I can quit, let's say, for a year? Um, do it really smart, do it intelligently. So it's an empowered choice. And then as you go to work for a year, knowing you don't like the job, it's for a purpose. You've done it out of a very empowered place. And then the dream it part is I want you to also now not think of the worst case scenario, but how can you make this the best case scenario? And how can you make that an actionable plan to influence it, you know, to really try and get the situation into a position that you want it to be? And that really calms anxiety down around these huge life choices. One last question for you. Um, I want to hear about the new album that you recently came out with. What was the driving inspiration behind the album? Why did you decide to come out with more music? Yeah, it's been seven years since I made an album. Um, after my divorce was a whole new level of just trying to figure out a whole new set of tools um, and be a mom. I was now a single mom and really wanted to be there for my son and with my son. Uh, but finally, it felt like time to make an album, and I wanted it to be based on who I was now as a 48-year-old woman. I have thousands of songs in my back catalog, and typically, I never write for an album. I just go through my back catalog. It's a real luxury not to have to have that pressure of writing. But I didn't want it to be that way with this. I wanted it to be all new from who I was now, and it was really difficult. I think I wrote 200 songs to get the 12 that I liked for this one. But it it was worth the fight for me because I don't know how to describe it. There's not a lot of female heroes as singer-songwriters that were able to continue to feel more empowered as they got older. You know, Joni Mitchell and Ricky Lee Jones are such badass women and they're so talented. But for some reason, Bob Dylan and Neil Young outsell tickets and they shouldn't. Like these women are just as profoundly talented as these men. And I just, I wanted this album to show a sense of empowerment, a sense of what it's like to be a female at 48 that feels, I'm at the top of my game. I'm a better singer and I'm a better writer. And I wanted it to have that sense about it. I love that. Well, my hope is that tons of people, but especially young women who are in the early days of their careers as musicians, listen to this conversation, but also listen to your new album and have a sense of what they can be excited for, not just for the next decade, but for the next several decades. Jewel, thank you so much for joining Imposters. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks. There is so much to take away from Jewel's wisdom on protecting your mental health and your happiness. But to me, what stands out the most is how core her North Star decisions are and how by holding happiness and mental wellness as her number one priority, she can't be bullied into doing anything that goes against these values. 
And I love this takeaway because while it's a powerful guiding principle, it's also a smart way to remind yourself to check in and be mindful of whether or not the decisions you're making are actually serving you. And if they're not, start examining why you're tolerating the intolerable and what the possible alternatives may be. Now, imposters listeners, we need your help. We would love to hear from you on how the conversations on imposters have impacted your life. How does this show help you in your career or your personal life? Are there any particular guests or episodes that have stood out to you? And tell me the stuff that you haven't liked where you want the show to get better. Our goal is simple. We wanna make this as valuable as humanly possible and make the show worthy of your time. So shoot me an email at alex at morningbrew.com and I'll get back to you as soon as possible. Imposters is a production of Morning Brew. Our producer is Michaela Heck. Greg Jacobs is our video producer and AB Silver is our booking producer. Our sound engineers are Dan Bauza and Rosemary Minkler. Our theme song is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Original music in this episode is by Rosemary Minkler. 